I'm so glad that you're here. We, we had a, a gathering like this last Sunday, and if you were here, we handed out the cards. Do you remember the cards that we handed out? Uh, what we did was we invited people to write down something that God has done in their life and they're thankful for, and then something that they're concerned about, something that's not right that we could pray for. So hopefully if you got one of those cards, I hope that you didn't chuck it. <laughs> I hope that you've been praying for that person. I hope that you've been thinking about that person. Why? Because... Because of Jesus, we are not just friends that meet on the weekends. We actually believe that what Jesus said is true. We are now a part of a family, a global family. You're my brother, you're my sister. We are united under the person of Jesus. And so as brothers and sisters, it's a thrill to not go through life alone, but to have people to share the highs and the lows with. Um, This week was an interesting one uh, for me. My brother had a heart attack. I've talked about it probably too much on January the 19th, and it hit me this week. I'd just been going, 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 and then had a coffee with a doctor friend to help explain his EKGs to me, and it sunk in. Oh my goodness. So it was a really, really, I left here elated about what God was doing, and by like Wednesday, Thursday, I'm just bummed because it really set in. My brother, who's 18 months older than me, is in a, is in a tough situation, and and so for some people, Easter's about pastel and chocolate bunnies, and you're just good, you're high as a kite the sun, you got a tan, you got a burn, you don't care, you're happy, and, and that's great. And, and I'm sort of there, but there are others who are struggling, hurting, suffering. I was talking to Karen beforehand, and uh, she just lost her dad a couple of weeks ago, sudden illness, and, and he was gone, and that's where some of us find ourselves. But the beauty is, if you're connected with God's people, you're not alone, so so Wednesday, I'm meeting with Brooke, and we're supposed to talk about stuff like this. And we got our little checklist, because we're type A-driven people. And then he asked me the question, so how are you doing? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm fine, fine, fine. You know, come on, one. And then he's like, no, how are you doing? And then I just start blobbering. Like, I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't crying, because we were in a public place, which I cry anyway. But, like, <laughs> but I'm just like spilling the beans, and the whole meeting was shot, because he was just listening to me blabber about all the stuff that I didn't even realize was going on. And I said, I thank God that I got a friend more than that. I've got a brother like Brooke that I can, I can be honest with. It's great to be in a place, and I hope you find this in your life, where you don't have to pretend. You don't have to fake it till you make it. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. You don't have to pretend to be high when you're low. You can be the real you and bring those real things to Jesus. And that's why we're here tonight. And that's why when we started the church last year on Easter, happy anniversary, we started one year ago, I know, which is, which is wonderfully American. I love that. Let's clap for ourselves. Anyway, I do it all the time. I clap for me in the mirror. It's really weird. Um, no. But uh, it's great now. We started with Philippians, a study, because Philippians is about what a community, what a church looks like. And we spent a good part of the year looking at what it means to be a family. And now, year two, we're starting a study in Mark because we're enamored by Jesus, but some of us, most of us, all of us don't know Jesus as well as we can. So I hope that you are ready. It's going to take us more than a year to go through what is only 16 chapters, but we go really slow. We don't want to miss a thing. So tonight, here's the plan. It's fairly simple. We're going to read the first verse, and we're going to dig in and begin to discover who this Jesus really is. Mark 1, verse 
one, it will take us three seconds. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Mark is one of four Gospels. If you're new to the Bible, there are actually four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark, we believe, was written first. It's the first account that was put to pen. The story was out there. The followers of Jesus were talking. It was an oral culture. Everyone was used to hearing stories told again and again and again. Most people didn't read. Most people didn't have a library. Most people never sat down and read a text. But Mark eventually, and is the first of four to write it down, and he starts it off with 14 words in English, but it's actually only seven in Greek. It's just seven words that are very simple. Now, I want to contrast before we look at the seven words, 14 in English, thinking, what's the difference? Because in Greek culture, you needed less words to say the same thing. But to get the nuance, when you translate it into English, it takes twice as many words. But I want us to see the beginning of Matthew and Luke to contrast why Mark starts the way he does. Because Mark is not random. Mark is not wasting time. Mark wants us to know something from day one, word one, page one. Let's throw it up. Uh, We have Matthew and we have Luke. Matthew starts this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And if you read Matthew's gospel, he's going to spend the whole first chapter listing out Jesus's heritage background because Matthew has an agenda. Matthew wants you to know something about Jesus's background. So he starts that way. And that's totally normal and that's fine. Luke on the other hand, is slightly more wordy. Do you notice? Many have undertaken to drum up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us from those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you. And he goes on and on and on. Luke wants the readers to know that he's done all of his research, all of his homework, and here is an orderly account of what happened in this person called Jesus. But what we have here in Mark uh, is something different. Mark uh, is more like a newspaper article. Some of you journalists know that if you're going to write an article, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to load it on the front end, aren't you? So to keep people going, if you're going to write an article, you're going to tell people as much as you can in that first sentence or two, because if they miss the rest of it, they have to get the bulk of it, so you load it up on the front end, and that's exactly what Mark does. Mark writes fast, he writes furious, he doesn't waste any time, and so he loads the whole book into the first sentence. So if you get Mark 1, verse 1, you don't have to come to church for a year, it's going to be awesome. No you get it all. You get the entire reason he's writing. You get the focus of what he's going to write about, and he's telling you everything up front because he doesn't want you to miss it. He's using what in the first century was just one of many writing styles. So whether it was this or another book, you could write what's called an incipit. An incipit was you load the first sentence with as much as you can, power punched, so that the reader knows what they're going to read before they read it, and they're intrigued enough to keep reading. And that's all that Mark does. And he does it in seven simple words. Uh, If you look at your Bible, it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. In Greek, the language of the day that Mark is writing in, it's just beginning, the gospel, Jesus, Messiah, Son, 
God. Seven power-packed words that I pray no matter whether you're on a high tonight or you're desperately low, I pray that these seven words that set the trajectory of the gospel of Mark, and I pray tonight they will set the trajectory for your year. There is something in these opening seven words. We don't want to miss them. So the plan for tonight, before we go to the table and we have a huge meal, because we do anniversaries and parties big, so if you've eaten, pretend you haven't. And spring break is just about done, but it's not done yet. So once we're done with the gathering, we've, we've provided a lot more food. I hope you could stay and hang out and celebrate. But before we do that, now I turn your stomach on. Sorry. You're like, oh, I wasn't hungry until he said that. We want to look at these seven words that open up the gospel of Mark. Just look at your Bible. It says the beginning. For Mark, it's just beginning, RK. It's, it's not just a random word saying like, okay, here's the start of my story. But Mark is a Jew. And that's his background. Mark is writing both to Jews who have become Christians and to those who have no Jewish background. So here's the cool thing. If you're new to church, God, religion, you're going to get this because Mark in sentence one is going to set it up to help you know who Jesus is. And so he says beginning. Now he, he's throwing a hint to those with Jewish background because remember, we have the whole Bible. When Mark is writing some 20, 30 years after Jesus is risen, when Mark is writing, there's only one part of the Bible, the first half for us, the 39 books we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And so it was put in a different order than we put it in today, but everyone had in the first century when they're reading it, their Bible started with Genesis. And Genesis 1.1 says what? In the beginning. So Mark starts with the same exact word when you translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek and you're looking at next to Mark, beginning, beginning. What Mark is saying from the outset is just like the story of creation, just like the story of the making of the universe, just like the story of the making of man and woman, just like you had a beginning, I want you to sit down, brew extra strong coffee and read this because there's a new beginning. At the outset, Mark's first word is to link it back to creation, the God who made the universe and the God who made a garden and the God who put men and women in it and said, enjoy, it's all good. The God who saw men and women rebel and destroy it and sin and make a mess of it. The God who authored all of this, who creates, is the God who's creating something new in the coming of this person called Jesus. For us, it's just, you read it, you gloss over but Mark wants you to know, word one, sentence one of page one, that there is a new beginning. And that is our prayer for you tonight and this year, that, yeah, you showed up, you're whatever your age, and you've had your background, whether it's religious or non-religious, whether you absolutely love Jesus, you don't know him, or you're intrigued. We pray that as you study what God has done, as you read the book, as you listen to the Spirit of God speaking to your soul, that you will have an absolutely new beginning. The God who creates is about to recreate everything and it's in the person of Jesus. Mark wants us to know beginning creation. The second two words there, the beginning of the good news, my Bible says. The good news, your, your Bible may say the gospel. Those are words two and three. Now, there's a little bit of an exercise to help us understand this. Uh, tell me, uh, describe to me what the word fair is means. If I say the word fair, what does that mean? Help me out. Unbiased. Unbiased. 
Someone's been watching Fox News. Anyway. Um, <laughs> fair. Justice, okay. Equality, okay. Beautiful, okay. Anyone else? Balance. Balance. <laughs> Another Fox News friend. I'm sorry? State fair. Thank you. Someone who's thinking the obvious. Like, yes, the state fair. How about bus fair? How about your kids are fighting? Be fair. You know, like, the word fair means a lot of things. It means a state fair. It means a bus fair. It means balanced. What does the word fair mean? Well, it depends on where you're coming from and what your angle is. And so the same thing when we look at the scriptures, we need to see in Mark, and I want you to think about this, He's writing to those with a Jewish background, so they're going to have a nuance of some words. When you say the word gospel, Jewish people are going to think something. But if you're a Roman, which he's writing to the people in Rome, in their culture, who don't have a religious background, he's, he's writing the same word. So when we say the word gospel, we probably have all sorts of thoughts when it comes to like gospel, like a genre of music, like, you know, gospel music. There's a whole industry, gospel songs. Uh, gospel radio stations, gospel books. What is the gospel? Well, we're going to get into it because it's going to come up again and again, especially in chapter one. But for tonight, I want you to think that it means at least, at least two different things to two different groups. The gospel for the Jews, uh, the, the euangelion is the word in Greek, it showed up throughout the Old Testament, usually relating to good news about a victory in battle. So, so the kings of Israel would go out into battle and they would win the victory and someone would be sent back to Jerusalem to report the euangelion, the good news. Hey, God is with us and we've won the victory. But as time goes on, uh, it, it changes and morphs a little bit. And by the time you get to the end of the prophetic writings before the time of the gospels in their writing, all you need to know for today is that the good news was tied up with the expectation that God was going to once again send someone like a king, a leader, who is going to bring God's people who are now living under Roman authority, oppressed. They're not leading in their own land. They're living in Jerusalem, but they're not the rulers. The Romans are. That God is going to somehow, someway, send someone to bring God's people back to victory. So Mark starts his gospel by saying beginning creation of the good news what's about to happen is what god has been promising for a long time so that in our framework that's what the gospel means for a jew but as well he's writing to people who have no jewish background at the same time the romans like the jews had a nuance on what the gospel was the euangelion the good news was about a victory. If the general went out and won the victory, they would send a soldier back with good news. But it also was tied to the announcement of a new leader. So Rome at this time in the first century is led by the Caesars, Caesar Augustus uh, and other Caesars. And so when a new Caesar was born, this was good news. This was a euangelion. So they would send people throughout the, it's a pre-Twitter empire. It's really weird. They had to send people on horses, no lie, out. It's like, look, my kids talk about in the olden days, like when TV was black and white or we didn't have it. <gasps> the olden days. Well, in the olden days, they would send people to the corners of the empire. Take them weeks, months with a scroll 
that had an announcement that was now months old. Good news! A new Caesar has been born, and he is a son of God, and he is our Savior. He's Lord. And so when Mark is writing, he's not wasting time. This is about new life. This is about recreation. This is about what God did at the beginning. He made the universe, but something's being made brand new, and it's in Jesus. And this is an announcement of good news. Now, if you were a Roman hearing this, and you didn't have the the, the Jewish background, you would immediately say, "Uh uh-oh, this could be trouble. Because the good news was about a Roman leader The good news was about a Caesar. The good news was about a king, a human, who claimed to be the very son of God. And now Mark is telling us this is great news. But it's not about Caesar. It's about the next word. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. About Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the interesting thing uh, about Jesus is Jesus is a common name for us like we think, I always think it's weird, even though I'm Spanish and background and Jim helped me on this one, that, you know, you have so many people call Jesus. Like, who would name their kid Jesus? Which is another story altogether. But Jesus, we think immediately Bible and like, you know, most wouldn't name their kid Jesus because like, talk about expectations. Like, you know, wow, set me up for failure. But, um, <laughs> but Jesus is a common name. Uh, it's actually just a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua, and Joshua means God or Yahweh saves. So Jesus' name is fairly common, but look at what Matthew has to say about Jesus. Mark doesn't pick up on this, but Matthew, I think we have it on the screen. Matthew says in Matthew 121, speaking of Mary, she'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Joshua or Yahweh saves or Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the angel that comes even to Mary at the beginning says there's something unique about this Jesus. Now, Mark's going to give us two things about Jesus that you need to know, and they're going to run all throughout the book. But he says up front, this is what Jesus is in its most important state. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the Son of God. Now, the Messiah is the first thing he says. Now, very Jewish in its background, if you're reading this and you have that, you've read the Old Testament, you've read the Hebrew Scriptures, you know what Mark's alluding to. But Messiah simply means to anoint. Uh, the Messiah was simply one who was anointed. Uh, and, and many people in the time of Jesus and prior were anointed, or what we would say like inaugurated, like if you win an election, you're installed into office. Well, in the, in the time of Jesus and prior, the way that you would do that in Jewish culture, culture was to anoint them, to set them apart, to say, okay, this is the new king. God's hand is on him. This is the new priest. God's hand is on him. Uh, this is a prophet. He speaks for God. God's hand is on him. And so Messiah is someone who would be anointed, set apart, uh, covered by God with some godlike activity that would be important. And in the, in the beginning, early on in the story of God interacting with people, with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob and the descendants that were called Israel, it was always God's intention for all of God's people to live in close relationship, to live as sons and daughters of God. God's plan from the beginning wasn't to have a few religious people that are close 
and then the rest who kind of climb the hill and hopefully make it, but have no chance of knowing the living God. You read the Bible, you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the early story of God, you find God wants all of his people to come close all the time. Now, nothing's changed. God's designed for you right now is that you'd live in close relationship with him, that you wouldn't be a stranger showing up to one of his meetings once or twice a year, but that you would live day by day knowing God, what he thinks about you, what he says about you, what he wants for you, what he requires of you. It's always God's plan. But early on, the people, like we are today, were afraid to get close. So God had a few people, kings, prophets, and priests, that were anointed to stand between God and the people and and call them close and call them to his side. Now, as time went along and more and more people failed, uh, some of the kings were failures. Some of the priests were failures. They were rebels. All of us have sinned, the Bible says. Every one of us has fallen way short of God's expectations for our lives. We're all messed up. But over the centuries, more and more, uh, if you read the Old Testament, the the belief became that God would send someone like a king who would be anointed to bring God's people back as people like you and I. It happens day after day. We start with a little bit of trouble, a little bit of rebellion, a little bit of sin, and we find ourselves eventually leaning out of control as God's people were out of control. God had promised through the prophets he was going to send someone to make things right. The word that was used to describe that person was Messiah. So that's a lot on the upfront, but remember, Mark is putting the whole book in one sentence. The beginning, there's creation, there's recreation. Uh, It's the gospel. This is good news, not just what you heard about, about a victory in war, but God's going to bring a great victory in this person, Jesus. Oh, this Jesus means Joshua, Yahweh saves. God hasn't forgotten us. Even his name symbolizes what he's going to be about. And this Jesus is not just going to be a king, a savior, a leader. He is actually the Messiah. He's the one that all of the prophets and all of the writings are leaning towards. It's all in this one person, Jesus. So the Messiah is going to show up at least seven times in the Gospel of Mark. We'll delve in as we reach it in each text. But but interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't want people to know he's the Messiah. This is really weird. Mark says it 1, 1. Jesus the Messiah. But if you look at Mark chapter 8, and I would encourage you, we're going to throw it up on the screen, but you could just slide over to Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. It's interesting because even though Mark says Jesus Messiah, when people claim that he was the Messiah, Jesus wanted to shrink back from that. Verse 27 of Mark chapter 8 says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. So people weren't sure who Jesus was, and Jesus is doing a little bit of a straw poll to find out what his own followers think. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. Why would Jesus say, don't, don't let anyone know, don't talk about it? 
It's because what we're going to find in the Scriptures, as in our lives, is that we all have our own expectations of what we think God is supposed to do, don't we? Every single one of us, you walked in here, and everyone already knows who God is, to some extent, at least in our own thinking. We all have Jesus figured out. For some of us, he's everything, Savior of the world. Some, he's just one of many good religious teachers. Others, he's a bit of an anomaly, and, and that's okay. But you have your version of God. You have your version of Jesus. And all of us have our expectations. If there's a God and if there's a Jesus, this is what I think he should do for me. All of us. You do and I do. And in Jesus' day, he knew the expectations that the people, the Jewish people, had of Messiah. What they expected was Messiah would come, and remember, they're under Roman authority in their own land, but they don't lead it. They're expecting him to come as a king and to depose Caesar, to kick out the Roman government, to start a revolution, and now proclaim that the Jews lead the Jewish land. And so Jesus knew that people had a misunderstanding about what God intended from the beginning, just like sometimes we think we know God and then tragedy happens. Have you ever found yourself saying this? God, why would you? And then fill in the blank. Why would you let this happen to me? Or God, why didn't you let this happen to me? God, why, 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 why? We ask the why questions, and I'm not downing the why questions. They're important. And if you have those why issues, bring them to Jesus. He'll answer them in time, but we have them because we have our expectations of what we think God should do. And sometimes we get so disappointed by God and Jesus and church because our expectations aren't in line with God's expectations. And so if God is saying, this is what I want to do in your life, and we're over here, no wonder we're disappointed and so Jesus was like, shh, don't say a word. Because these people believe Messiah is coming as a triumphant military king. And I'm telling you, I am Messiah. I am, I am the one, but Messiah is nothing like you would expect. And so Mark is not saying that till chapter 8. But in verse 1 of chapter 1, he's hinting Jesus is someone sent from God, but it's not exactly who you would expect and as you'd expect it. And so tonight, what does that mean for us? I, it means I hope that you're open in your expectations. I hope that this year as we study the life, the person, the work of Jesus, that you will come with an open mind and an open hand saying, okay, Jesus, I think I have you figured out, but I'm open. Maybe there are things about you that I've misunderstood. Maybe there are things about you that I, I haven't even thought about. And if we'll come with that kind of mindset, unlike some of these early followers, we'll find ourselves blessed as we see Jesus for who he really is. Uh, Jesus the Messiah. When you think back at the end of 1-1, it's in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's the last two words I want to look at, the Son of God. What is that all about? Again, Fair, the word fair means, depending on what you're thinking about, bus fair, county fair, or being fair. And in the same way, Messiah had its understanding amongst the Jews. It wasn't really a thought in, in, in the Roman and Greek culture. But the Son of God, again, had two different meanings for two different groups. Uh, the Son of God for the Jews, ironically, 
was a title for many, many leaders who were considered God's children. Like I said, it was always God's intention that all of his people all of the time would live not like strangers, not like friends, but like family. So early on in Exodus, Moses, God speaks to Moses, uh, speak to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let Israel, speaking of all the people, my son, go out to worship. God always thinks of his people all like children, like a father to a son, like a father to a child. But ironically, because so many of us feel unworthy, so many of us feel that we, we don't deserve to be close to God, we push ourselves away from him. And so by the time of Jesus, son of God was another one of those titles, those phrases that was linked to the Messiah. So if you're a Jew and you're hearing this and you hear about this teacher called Jesus and some are claiming he's the one, Mark says straight up, this is the great news. Oh, Isaiah, the prophet, spoke of great news of one to come about the Messiah, the Son of God. Two titles that would be speaking about the person that they were hoping would come. And Mark says straight up, one, one, this is Jesus. But ironically, at the same time, he's speaking to these Romans. Now, for Romans, the Son of God meant many people who were quasi-divine but human. So Caesar, the military leader, was a son of God. Some of the great generals were considered sons of God. And so, so Mark is saying in one statement, to the Jews, this is the person that you were expecting. To those who had no Jewish background, this is not an ordinary human. This is not an ordinary person. This is the one with supernatural power. So what you're going to see is Mark is going to let us in on what Jesus did that if you were a Roman or a Greek and you came with that background, you want to know the divine. You want to know, you look for people who have marks of the divine. And, and Mark says at the beginning of his writing, look no further. You don't have to look to Caesar. You don't have to look to the magicians, to the priests at the temples. Look to the person of Jesus because he alone is the son of God. And this is why, and I'll throw a few on the screen, when Mark is writing in chapter 3, verse 11, whenever, uh, whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. So, so even those who were demonic, these powers that are unlike God, they noticed that Jesus was the son of God. Then Mark 9, verse 7, a cloud appeared, covered them. A voice came from the cloud. This is when Jesus his appearance becomes clear to his disciples and he's transfigured on a mountain. This is my, this is God speaking, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. If you're a Jew reading these words, you're, you're picking up that this is a continuation of what God's been saying from the beginning. My point tonight is Jesus doesn't come to us in a vacuum. Jesus came to the earth fulfilling what had been happening for centuries in history, there was expectation. And at the right time, God did in full view. He foretold and then he came and he did exactly what he promised. But it's interesting to note when it comes to the Son of God that the Jewish people don't pick up on Jesus as the Son of God first, but rather it's a Roman. Just turn to the right in your Bible. Um, Mark chapter 15 and we're going to go to the end because it is Easter and we celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But in Mark chapter 
15, and we'll read verse 39. Um, it tells us who picked up on Jesus as son of God first. And when the centurion, who's a Roman soldier, who stood there in front of Jesus, who saw the crucifixion and how he died, he said, surely this man was what? Son of God. Who is considered son of God? Who's considered Lord and King? It's Caesar. And in a twist, it's funny, but sometimes the least likely people to encounter the living God, encounter the living God. You'd expect if you grew up reading the Bible, going to church and doing religious stuff, you would expect that you would get a glimpse of who God is and who Jesus is and you'd know him and follow him. But sometimes it's the person out of left field that you wouldn't expect. I mean, even that's you here tonight. You have no Jesus background or very little. You don't read the Bible. You don't know the songs, but you're open. It is the Roman soldier who by his oath is following Caesar the Lord, Caesar the Son of God, when he sees what Jesus has done. He committed no crime. There's no reason. But he willingly lays down his life when he sees that Jesus on the cross, people mocking, making fun of him. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he sees the love of God in Jesus for his mom, and, and Jesus turns to his disciple John and says, this is my mom. Mary, this is, you, John, you take care of my mom. She's now yours. When he sees the love of a son, even for his mother, while he's suffering, Jesus is even caring for his mom. When he sees Jesus, the centurion is the first to claim, not the Jews, not even his own disciples. And to me, that's the beginning of gospel. That's the beginning of good news. It means that anyone Anywhere, at any point, if you will open your eyes and see Jesus for who he is, you can be transformed. The centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. Now, now Mark puts it in seven words, and it's taken me 30 minutes to explain his seven little words. They're power-packed, and they're going to set the tone, not just for tonight, but for the next year of study, because we want to learn and discover to see who Jesus is as Messiah, anointed, blessed, promised, sent one from God, and yes, very much the Son of God. And the beauty is, when Jesus rises, everything begins to change. So before we go to the table, before we continue to sing, I want us just to look now, in light of all that, at Mark 16, at what happens when these early followers experience the resurrection. Mark chapter 16, and we'll read from verse 5. Some ladies go to anoint Jesus at his tomb. And in verse 5 it says, As they entered the tomb, they, these ladies, saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus? the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And verse eight, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. <laughs> They were thrown off. Uh, the first uh, picture of the resurrection 
isn't with a group of people getting it, singing songs and sitting in rows and eating nachos or chicken wings or whatever we have afterwards. It was absolute bewilderment, confusion, amazement. They didn't know what to do with this. And that's the beauty about taking an honest look at Jesus. At first, it was confusing. The disciples didn't understand it. The close ladies who were following didn't understand it. And, and at first, most of us don't get it. So if you find yourself here tonight and you're like, I would love to know this God. I would love to know this Jesus, but it's all a bit cloudy. The encouraging message of resurrection, the encouraging message of Easter is that none of the disciples got it at first, but over time, and as we read the Gospels, over the next 100 days, Jesus at first, in the first 40 days, shows himself to these early followers, and he explains it to them. And so this Jesus stuff, church stuff, Bible stuff is new to you. My challenge to you tonight is take the next few weeks. Come again next week. Come for a few more weeks. Come for a month. Come for six months and check out Jesus for yourself. Here's why. Here's what I have found to be true, and maybe I'm off, but I've asked a lot of people. Every one of the early followers had their opinion about Jesus, just like we do. Let me just ask you tonight, your opinions about Jesus, where did you get them from? What you know about Jesus, where did you get that from? Is it from honest, hard research? Have you read the Gospels, these accounts of the good news of Jesus? Have, have you asked some people who have been following him? Have you done your homework or... Are your opinions about Jesus inherited? The more and more, especially as I speak with young people who live here in America, most of the opinions about Jesus are not from a first-hand look and investigation. Most of them have been inherited. Well, this is what I heard when I went to church as a kid, or, or this is what I think. That's my favorite. This is what I think. Now, there's lots of actual data. If you want to discover about the life of Jesus, he is a real person in history. None of this is made up. All of this is verifiable. There is not one honest human being who's going to lay claim that Jesus, this Jewish teacher, did not live in the first century and do this miraculous work. There's all this evidence out there, but I think some of us let our opinion and our background cloud what we think about Jesus. And tonight, my invitation to you is to take it, and if Jesus is disappointing, please don't follow him. Somebody say, I came to church and the guy said, don't follow Jesus. If he is disappointing, don't follow him. If he isn't who he said he is, don't follow him. If he isn't the same Jesus who raises people from the dead and then rises himself on the third day and is alive, don't follow him. But if he is, and if Jesus is who he claims he is, then all of our lives have to be changed in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So tonight, I'm going to ask you, are your opinions about Jesus, are they from your firsthand research or have they simply been inherited? Tonight, I would challenge you, I would encourage you, I would implore you, take a closer look at Jesus. Uh, if it helps, every Sunday night, we're going to be right here going line by line, verse by verse, but here's what Mark wants you to know on the upfront. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is for everyone. Mark's writing to those with religious background and without religious background, but in his seven words in the first sentence, he wants you to know whether 
you know about Son of God? What do you know about Messiah? Bible or no Bible? Jesus is for everyone. And Jesus is for everything. And what we're going to discover in these next 16 chapters is that there isn't a person that Jesus is not willing to spend time with. There's not a troubling situation Jesus can't fix. There's not a dead situation Jesus can't resurrect. There's nothing impossible for this Jesus. Just read it for yourself. And if these two facts are true, and they are, Jesus is for everyone, then that means Jesus is for you. He is not just a person in history that ought to be respected on a few days of the year. If Jesus is the sent one from God and he's risen and he's now the king of the universe, the creator, Jesus, at the beginning now is willing to recreate everyone and everything, then there isn't any piece of your life that you shouldn't devote back to this Jesus. So those of us who are already following him, we love this Sunday. We love this celebration because it reminds us that we're worshiping a God who made all things and can make all things new. And so, yeah, I could go through my bum week dealing with very real circumstances about my brother's health situation, but I can do it with hope because of the resurrection and whether my brother is able to live 10, 20, 30 more years and his heart is fully cured, I would give great praise to Jesus. Or if, if my brother's life isn't that long or is full of suffering and and heartache because of what has happened, I can still have hope because Jesus makes all things new. And if you and I are in Jesus, then one day when this life is over and, and we will all die, one day we will be with him forever. And one day, as Jesus promised, he will return. And whether I go to be with him or he comes and returns, I will be forever with the Lord. And that's the Christian hope. And that's all because Jesus is who he says he is. And so tonight, we're going to invite you to follow this Jesus. We're going to invite you into baptism. We've got uh, a brand spanking new um, baptismal. And one of the key ways that people who follow Jesus do that publicly, and you see it all throughout uh, the time of Jesus. By the way, we're going to read in chapter one, Jesus was baptized. And all of the early followers of Jesus were baptized. And we'll get into that when it comes up in the text. But this is a great picture because it reminds us in the water, there is a going under and a coming up. When, when Christians throughout the centuries have chosen to follow Jesus, this has been one of the primary visible ways of demonstrating that. Why? Because it shows we go down, our old life is over, but we come up, there's a washing. There's, it's symbolic, but it's beautiful. There's a making of new that is gone. I've, I've gone under. But now, like Jesus went down and he did die. I've been risen. My life is now in Jesus Christ. I've been given a fresh start, a new hope. All things become new and all things can change because of this Jesus. And so tonight, we're going to, as a celebration, as we sing, as we go to the table, we're going to invite you, if you've not yet, since you've started following Jesus, been baptized. Tonight's tonight. I know that there's at least one or two who said, you know what, I want to do that on this Easter Sunday. You say, I'm not ready. Are you ever ready? Really? I think when these early disciples, when they were bewildered, amazed, confused, when Jesus showed up again and demonstrated who he was, they put their complete faith in him. And so tonight we're going to invite you to put your trust in Jesus alone to rescue you, and we're going to invite you to come and be baptized. And another one of these symbols that 
have happened throughout the centuries that's so beautiful is the table. The table uh, represents there's, there's juice and there's cracker, there's wine and there's bread, there's body and there's blood. And we celebrate it week after week. It's not morbid, it's beautiful. We remember that the Messiah, God's promised one, no one expected the Messiah to die. That's why Jesus didn't lay that claim. They thought the Messiah was going to be a victorious king. They had no idea. Messiah's job was to give his life for the good of the people. So Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that now we could be made right with God. And on the cross, Jesus pays my sin in full. And in the resurrection, he shows that death has been defeated. And now, no, no matter what I'm going through, Jesus is alive. And so because he is alive, I too can live. And tonight, if that's you, if you say, Jose, I want to experience the resurrection. I want to know this Jesus. You can do that tonight. I'm going to invite the band to come back. And we're going to go to the table in a moment. But I don't know where you're at with Jesus. Some of you, you're here tonight. You're just full of joy, full of chocolate and candy. You're full of pastel colors. You're full of, you're full of hope. You, you're, just, you're giddy because you get to celebrate the resurrection. But in a group like this, there's always one, two, three who feels far from the love of God, feels distant from Jesus. And tonight, we want to invite you to follow him. Uh, Jesus his favorite phrase, we're going to see it in Mark and in other places in the Gospels, is follow me. You say, I don't know much about Jesus. You don't need to know much to begin following him. Mark says it all in the first sentence. Jesus, Messiah, sent one from God. Oh, more than that, the Son of God. There's no one like Jesus. And tonight, I hope that you would follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you died and you rose again to give us life, give us hope, to come and make right the things that are broken, crushed, dying in our own situation, and to give us the hope that one day you'll make all things new. Jesus, this time in life is short, but we know that in you we have life now, and in the life to come, we get to experience all that you are. And it's because of you, Jesus. So tonight our hearts are bent towards you. We want to follow you. But yet in our own soul we feel so unworthy. And so we come with all of our sin, rebellion, junk, history, baggage, memories, addictions. We, we come with all that. And tonight, again, all of us afresh say, Jesus, we want to follow you. Help us to follow you. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.